Well, this morning, I want to read, or I guess start us out in Psalm 18. You, I don't think you'll actually find this passage uh, put on the screen this morning, so feel free to just listen. I'm going through various different passages this morning, but to begin our time in the Word, I'm going to read to us from Psalm 18, beginning at verse 1. So feel free to just listen or feel free to go there with me in your copy of God's Word or there should be also a seat perhaps underneath you or the seat in front of you, a Bible that you can open. So Psalm 18, beginning at verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shield entangled me, The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we call upon you this morning to to bless us with your presence, to bless us with your word. Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you might take these truths, God, and that you might help us to believe in them and to equip ourselves with them and to carry them with us as we go about this new year. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, typically, towards the end of the year, I will normally preach a, a sermon sort of condensing maybe some of the points or, or two or three of some of the points of, or realities or truths that we've covered throughout the year. And as it turned out with the calendar, I'm doing this on the first day of the new year, so typically this would be on the last Sunday of the previous year or the old year. But regardless, walking through various passages, because throughout 2022 we've uh, we spent most of our time on a couple of different books through the summer, like we typically do. We work through the Psalms, or some of the Psalms, and so we covered several of those throughout the summer. Also, we've also been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, as many of you know. And so my desire this morning is just to take a few things from the Psalms that we've covered and the book of Ecclesiastes and the... My desire is to give you at least a, a few things or a couple things for you to consider, to, to take with you into the new year. I have a, a good friend of mine who, uh, towards the end of the year, or towards the, maybe the beginning of the new year, he sits down with his wife and they sort of reflect on the previous year, what have, some have, been, what have been some of the ways that God has answered prayer. They look even through their calendar, what have been some of the biggest events, what have they learned? And they've been able to sort of 
see some, like a, a theme or two throughout the year, whether it's maybe perhaps God's providence or God's faithfulness. And so really, really, really valuable. And so my point is, I don't know how you might characterize what 22 has been like for you. But regardless of how the year has been, I hope that you can take some of the things that I intend to bring before you this morning just to encourage you and to equip you and to help prepare you for whatever comes your way in this new year. In Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Perhaps the year 22 has been like this, where you're, maybe you have had seasons maybe the entire year has been characterized in this way where you're asking, how long, O Lord? How long? When? When are you going to answer my prayers? When are you going to come through? When are you going to deliver? When are you going to provide? The psalmist knows exactly what that's like. He knows the challenges, the struggles that you perhaps are most familiar with. You address your prayers, you stamp the envelope, and you mail it out only to find that days later the prayer is sitting there in your mailbox saying, return to sender. We're sort of like lifting up these prayers and they continue to go unanswered. We don't know exactly what the psalmist's affliction was. We don't know exactly what he was going through that generated these, these profound and heartfelt prayers where he's feeling like, God, you are taking a long time to answer my prayers and come through. And we don't exactly need to know what he's going through to know exactly how he feels. Again, because perhaps you have felt similarly. Could have been trouble at work, trouble at home the loss of something important to you or precious to you, perhaps the loss of a loved one, unanswered prayer, the sting of broken trust, unmet hopes and dreams and desires. Any of these things can make you feel exactly what David the psalmist felt when he wrote these words. And we can sum up all of these feelings and describe them as God feels distant. He doesn't feel close. He doesn't feel near. Instead, he feels far off. Then, at the end of Psalm 13, in verse 5, he writes, But I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Could an amazing 
conjunctions there. He says, but, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And there's nothing in the psalm. This is a very short psalm. And there's nothing in the psalm that tells us this is a change in his circumstances. There's nothing there that says God has come through, that God has provided, God has answered prayers. Instead, what we see is this change in verse 5 when he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. So this is change in his response. All the while, there doesn't seem to be any change in his circumstances. He says, regardless of what's going on, I will sing to the Lord. I will trust. My heart shall rejoice. I mean, how is that kind of response even possible? Right, and if you've been there, right, and when, in seasons like that, when you're in moments like that, it seems almost impossible to have like this turnaround where you can say, I will sing to the Lord, and I will praise Him, and I will worship, and I will trust. How is that response even possible? It is because the psalmist has trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. He trusts in the God that never changes. And in this way, he comes to believe that God is actually much closer than his feelings lead him to believe. Because let's be honest, feelings are not always reality. Yes, sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. So the reason why the psalmist, despite his circumstances and his situation, can have this response and sing to the Lord is because he trusts in the God who never changes. The God who is characterized by steadfast love. A love that is fixed. A love that is unmovable. A love that is unshakable. A love that is permanent. A love that can never ever be stolen or taken away. And this is how we ought to ground our feelings. And certainly we can and we should pray for deliverance, for God to come through, for God to provide, to God, for God to provide the strength and encouragement and answer our prayers. In another psalm, the psalmist says that he will call, or God says, call upon me. In the psalms, he says, God says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you, and you shall glorify me. Right, and that's the pattern of the Scriptures. We call upon God. We trust in God. God answers. And God comes through. And in response, we turn to Him and we worship. For He provides. For He has come through because He answers. We love that pattern. We pray for that pattern. We should exemplify that pattern as we make a request known to God. But deliverance and answered prayer is not required in order to trust in Him. We trust Him first. And the reason we can trust Him is because the Bible tells us that the kind of God that is trustworthy, the God who is characterized by steadfast love. So we do not wait until God provides and then we trust. No, we trust in who He is first. Did not the Apostle Paul trust in his Lord when he was in prison, when he was beaten for the gospel? 
when he was shipwrecked? Did not Job trust in his God when everything was taken from him? Did not Jesus trust in his heavenly Father and committed his life into the Father's hands when he agonized in the garden and all the way to the crucifixion? The ground of our trust in the Lord is the steadfast love of God. In Lamentations, Jeremiah, as he's lamenting the plight of his people, Jerusalem, the city of Israel, the city has been destroyed. The people have been taken by the Babylonians. People have died. The sole city, the glorious city, has been leveled, set to fire. But he writes in Lamentations 3.21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Despite the destruction that is everywhere he looks, even though it appears that God is distant, yet he believes and prays and he writes that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and that they are even renewed every single morning. And for us, right, for those who are in Christ today, who stand on this side of the cross after Christ has come into the world and died on the cross and rose again and ascended unto heaven, we have a greater ground to stand on because we have the cross that is the magnificent display of the steadfast love of the Lord. So that despite what lies ahead, what lies before us in this year, let us continue to look to the cross and at the cross be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord as we cast our eyes to Christ. As we look to the cross, let us remember the steadfast love of God where the cross, at the cross, where God withdrew His presence from His Son so that through His sacrifice, God can then draw near to us. Let us look to the cross and be reminded of the great steadfast love of God where we see God hiding his face from his own beloved son so that through the cross God can shine brightly his face upon us today. Let us be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord as we look to the cross where God, the Son, receives the punishment for our sins so that in turn we might receive healing from our sins. When you feel as though you are drowning and being submerged and being weighted down under the waters of affliction and distress and suffering, as a believer, you wear the life jacket of the steadfast love of the Lord and you need only to pull the string and immediately the life jacket will inflate and bear you up above the waters. That is what the steadfast love of the Lord does for his people. In order to aid us in times of affliction and in those times and those seasons when God seems distant, we ought to look to the cross and be reminded there of the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember this as you go into this new year.
and also take hold of the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. Pray the promises of God. Meditate on the promises of God. Memorize the promises of God. Say to yourself the promises of God. Psalm 37.5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Psalm 55.22, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Those are promises of God. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and God will act. That's a promise. Cast your burdens on the Lord, and He will sustain you. That is a promise. These are the promises of God, and there are many, many more. We don't have the gift of foresight or foreknowledge to know what is coming ahead in this year. And we don't have to, because we trust in a God who already knows, who has the life of his people in his hands. We don't need to know what's coming. What we need to know are the promises of God. And it is those promises that will continue to bear you up and strengthen you and encourage you. They're the anchor to the tumultuous waves of your feelings. The promises of God is the, the handrail that you can cling to and help pick you up. The promises of God are the, the brakes to the roller coaster of your emotions. They keep you stable when you're flying through turbulence. Jesus, our Savior, and the promises of God are given to us so that we might seek refuge in them. I think, at least to me, one of the most comforting passages in all of the Bible is John 17.4. In John 17.4, Jesus is praying, and his prayer is, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That is one of the most comforting prayers because in this prayer that Jesus prays unto the Father, and there is no one that God listens to more than his own beloved Son. There's no one that God is more inclined to answer the prayers of than Jesus, his own beloved son. And Jesus' prayer is that for you and I to be with him one day where he is to behold his glory. And that is a comforting passage because despite what you might go through, despite the challenges and the obstacles and the suffering that you might experience, you have a faithful high priest who is praying that one day you may be with him where he is. standing at his side and beholding his glory. It is a prayer that if you believe in will get you through any difficult situation in your life, I'm convinced. Because the prayers of Christ are effectual. And God listens to the prayers of his Son And God desires, Jesus the Son desires for you to be with Him. And surely God will bring it about, pointing you to your ultimate destination, which is with Christ, 
despite what you go through, that is where you're headed. And nothing can change that. The theologian Herman Bavinck once wrote, because Christ is a perfect Savior who brings not only the possibility but also the actuality of salvation, he cannot and may not and will not rest before those who are his own have been brought where he is, there to be the spectators and sharers of his glory. Because of what Christ has done for us, we need never fear that God might let us go. But the reason why God has given to us his precious promises is so that we might use them to hold on to him. Yes, Jesus holds on to his own. He carries them. He secures them. He gives them assurance. But the promises of God are given to us for us to hold on to him. And there are other ways also that we are to hold on to Christ by walking in his ways, by following his commandments by being faithful unto the Lord. These are ways in which we hold on to Christ. But the promises of God are also there for us to employ, to equip ourselves with, so that we may in turn hang on to Jesus Christ as he holds on to us. When we suffer affliction, or in seasons when God might appear to be withholding his blessings from us, let us remember the steadfast of the Lord, which reminds us that God is much closer than you think or even feel. We belong to a God who is near. Take that with you into this year. Secondly, not only is this God near, but this God is also a God who flavors our life. So we walk through The Psalms last year, we also walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. So turning from the Psalms and now turning to Ecclesiastes, there are at least two major concerns in the book of Ecclesiastes. This one, I think, probably the most major concern in Ecclesiastes, and that is a concern for reality. And to help us understand reality, think of what you watch in television whether it's a sitcom or a television show or even a reality show, which isn't actually reality, I'm convinced, or a movie, right? Much of what you watch on television isn't reality, but it is scripted or it is an illustration or it is fiction, right? What we see on television, we know, isn't reality. The lives we live, on the other hand, yes, that's reality, Ecclesiastes 12:14 gives us a reality, and that is, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes attempts to, sort of like an onion, attempts to peel back all the layers, every single one, to get to the core. And some of those layers are good things. There are good things in the world that God provides, and praise God for that. We should rejoice in those things and enjoy those things to the glory of God. But Ecclesiastes attempts to peel back all of these layers to show us reality, what's at the core of everything. And at the core of everything is that there is a God who created all things, who created man, who created man for his own glory, who created man in his own image, and will one day bring every 
man into judgment for every deed and every secret thing, whether good or evil. And for those who are in Christ, who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, they need not fear that reality or that day of judgment, because on that day of judgment, God will not judge them by their works, but will judge them by the righteousness of Christ that they wear through faith in Christ. So we need not fear that reality. Regardless, the preacher of Ecclesiastes commends to the reader to live in the fear of God. And when we just talk about the fear of the Lord, this is a common commandment in the scriptures. We don't talk, we're not, we don't, it's not this, this, this agonizing fear. It is not this terror before God. But it is a revere for God as, a, as, as God, as the one who is holy, as the one who is glorious. It is a respect for God, for his authority. And it is also a love for God. A love for God as God, a love for God as Father. So not the kind of fear that a child might have for his own father if he's an abusive father, not that kind of God, not that kind of fatherhood. God is not that kind of father. But the kind of fear that a child might have for a loving father, a father that he loves, that he reveres, that he respects. That's the kind of fear that we ought to have before the Lord. This walking or this living in the fear of God it is like revering the, interrob- the terrible and terrifying storm that is outside and at the same time seeking refuge in the storm that is God. So it's concern for reality. And secondly, Ecclesiastes is also concerned for the good life. Or we might say the, the flavorful life. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, if If he is, and I believe he is, if he is in fact King Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes, this is, his words are coming from a man who has everything, who has tried everything, and he has all the knowledge and understanding, he has all the wisdom, and he writes to us as such. And he writes to his readers, he writes to us as people because he understands, as one who is wise, he understands the human heart. And in our hearts, generally, we want pleasure, we want happiness, we want joy, we want satisfaction, we want peace, we want assurance. These are all things that all people are after in some manner or some form. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes says to us, I have everything. I've done everything. And I know the human heart. And to spare you from this endless searching in the world, from things that ultimately do not satisfy, take it from me. I have been there. I have done it all. I have tried it all. And it's all been found wanting. It never ultimately satisfies. And as one who has 
it all and has done it all, essentially says to us, you don't need to have a bunch of stuff. You don't need to, even need to try a bunch of things in order to have joy. In fact, if you peel back all the layers of that stuff, if you have just the basic things, you have a home to go to, you have a family, you have food on the table, well, you can find all the joy and need in just the basic things in life. In fact, the person who has just those basic things and not all the other stuff can have more joy than the person who has it all and has done it all. And he gets to where exactly this joy and satisfaction comes from. And with that, he commends to us the life of wisdom. And he commends it to us as something that is most precious, that this is something that you should be after. This is something that you should long for. This is something that you should strive for. That if you desire anything, this should be it. That is living the life of wisdom. He presents wisdom as this thing that should be first place in our hearts, seeking it and desiring it, something that, that adorns our life, much like the adornments and the things that we put on a Christmas tree, for example. That wisdom is like the watch we put on our wrist, the ring to our finger, the necklace around our neck, the earrings upon our ears, the crown of our head. That wisdom is like this accessory that beautifies the person who wears it. A wisdom is not like makeup or the adorning of the hair or the nice clothes that only beautify the outward appearance. Wisdom is not concerned with the outward appearance, but wisdom is concerned with the inner person, is concerned with beautifying the inner person and adorning the inner person. And the thing about wisdom with a person who wears the adornment or the accessory of wisdom is that, yes, it beautifies the inner person, but you also cannot help but see it in the outer person as well. You can see it, for example, in one's conduct, in one's speech, in one's demeanor, in one's attitude. You might be able to see it in a person's response to pressure or how might they react to the unexpected or when someone cuts them off on the highway or when someone offends or how they might deal with sin and temptation, or how might they treat their children or their spouse, how they conduct themselves in the workplace. And in these ways and many others, you can see wisdom. And in this way, the Christian life is made flavorful, Ecclesiastes 9.17 says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Here's one way we see the wisdom of a person who wears it. That you could say that the person who is wise knows when to be quiet and that their silence actually speaks more volumes than the person who just shouts and speaks whatever is on their mind and only displays an inner foolishness. But in this talk of wisdom, 
is to find what wisdom is. Perhaps you might remember this when we covered it as we were walking through Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectations. Not man's expectations, not the world's expectations, not even my own expectations or your own expectations, but living according to God's expectations. And when a person walks according to God's expectations, they are walking in wisdom. That is wisdom. So wisdom is not something that you're born with. No person is ever born with wisdom. And wisdom is not determined by what a person achieves by their own hands or by their intellect. But wisdom instead is a process. It's like mastering an instrument. In its old usage, a person who mastered an instrument was a person who was considered wise because they knew their instrument in and out. They played it masterfully and wonderfully and beautifully because they know their instrument intimately and they have been playing it for years and years and years. And in the same way, your life itself is like an instrument. And if you want to know how to play the instrument of your life, then get wisdom. And wisdom is living according to God's expectations. And as you continue to live according to God's expectations, the thing about wisdom is that wisdom continues to grow. And wisdom gradually permeates every area of your life so that you then go on to apply it to every area of your life. It only gets better. It only shines brighter the more that you put it into practice. In the scriptures, and specifically the wisdom literature of the Bible, presents wisdom to us as something that is most desirable and most treasurable, that we ought to go about our business and seeking it and finding it, that we got to give it our every effort to pursue it and acquire it. And it's not that hard to have wisdom. The Bible makes clear that this wisdom is accessible to us through and in Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty four tells us that those, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ Jesus is the wisdom of the Lord. And so if we wish to walk in the fear of the Lord and grow in wisdom, then we ought to continue to Give our lives to Christ because wisdom is found in Christ. Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul speaks of this tension that he feels in his life. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. The scriptures present to us a cohesive message that, message, that is that we ought to pursue wisdom, that we ought to acquire wisdom, and the scriptures also tell us that Christ is the wisdom of God. And so they're essentially telling us to pursue the same thing, and that is Christ. And here is the Apostle Paul with this tension that he feels in his life, that his desire is to continue to live 
and fruitful labor in the Lord for the, on behalf of the church, on behalf of God, for the glory of God. And at the same time, he feels this tension of departing with Christ because Christ is his treasure. Because Christ is the object of all of his affections, is the object of his life. To him, Jesus is the treasure of one's life. And he continues in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8 of Philippians, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So whatever I had before, the prestige, the status, the authority, the money, whatever it is I had before Christ, I left it all behind, turned my back towards it so that I can have Christ instead because Christ is better than anything else that I had before. And this is wisdom. This is wise. But you go about this new year, grow in wisdom and grow in wisdom by pursuing Christ, knowing Christ. The Gospels compare the kingdom of heaven to a great pearl, a person found and he sold everything he had to buy the great pearl. The kingdom of heaven is, is, is compared to a man who once dug up a great treasure in the field and dug it all back in and then went back and sold all he had so he can buy the field with the treasure in it. Why would anybody give all that they had to pursue this pearl or this treasure they found in the field? Because they have determined that what they have found is better than what they had before. That what, what they have found doesn't compare to what they had before. And so they're willing to leave it all behind so that they can have this. And the Gospels tells us that this is the kingdom of heaven, the great treasure of anyone's life. This is what brings joy. This is what gives us satisfaction. This is what makes us rich in Christ. This is what we would desire for you to have if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Christ. The reality is that God will one day judge each and every person according to their deeds, and even every secret thing. They will be found wanting. Everything will be laid bare. They'll be found poor and destitute, not able to bring anything of value to bring before God, not even their works. But we would want you to be rich towards Christ to have the riches of knowing Christ, to have the riches of having the righteousness of Christ, so that on that day of judgment, you need not fear, because Christ is your Savior, because Christ has become your righteousness. Give your life to Jesus Christ, to making Him your Lord and Savior. And to you, he will be the God who is near to you. Despite the things that you are going to experience this year, the promise is that God will be near to those who trust in him and that he will ground you in his steadfast love. The first step towards wisdom is to believe and trust in Christ as Savior 
and to love him as your greatest treasure. The end of the matter, the preacher writes in Ecclesiastes 12:13, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You could have just written that, and that would have been the end of Ecclesiastes, and over and done with, move on to the next book. But instead, everything that he writes, chapter after chapter after chapter, leads to this. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Another way to think of the fear of the Lord is to live your life in the presence of God. To live your life, Coram Deo, in Latin, which is living your life in the face of God. This isn't just a recognition that God sees everything. Well, that is true. But this is to live your life in the face of God, to the honor and glory of God. It is doing everything that you do to the glory of God. It's why Paul writes in the first Corinthians that whatever you do, whatever you, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is what it is to live one's life before the presence of God. This is what it is to live in the fear of God. R.C. Sproul says to live in the face of God is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. This is the essence of the Christian life. It encompasses everything. It encompasses your words, your actions, how you conduct yourself in the workplace, your emails and text messages, your social media presence, if you have one, the things even that you mutter under your breath. It's all-encompassing. Just as Ecclesiastes is all-encompassing, really, Ecclesiastes covers just about everything, from marriage to children to your work to the handling of finances to satisfaction and identity, and purpose. All those things are covered in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's all telling us all those things, whatever you do, whatever your experiences, live it all to the glory of God. And that wisdom flavors everything. So that at the end of the day, the preacher says, if you want to be better at anything, if you want to be a better husband, a better wife, a better son or daughter, if you want to be a better friend, if you want to be a better employee or a better employer, if you want to be a better neighbor, then do this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Live your life in the face of God, to the glory of God. Psalm 4.3 says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That's a comforting passage. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is essentially what Ecclesiastes is about. Live a godly life. Live a godly life. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, live a godly life. Because God cares for you, live a godly life. Because Christ Jesus died for you. And the 
the word here is that God sets you apart. God sets the part the godly, not for anyone else, but for himself. That the godly belong to God, that you belong to the Lord. So that he is your God. And you are his son or daughter. So we should strive to live a godly life because we belong to the Lord. He's not a God who is distant, but he is very near to us. So that if we peel back all the layers of distractions and the illusions of the world, even peel back the, the sufferings that we experience in this life, everything at the core of everything, the core of our lives, what we see there is the God who is there, the God who is real, the God who loves, the God who sent his son to die for the sins of his people. God is much closer than you think. Remember that as you go about this year. And when you believe that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, You'll be living the good life. Because the good life is the life that believes that God is close and that is near and that never forsakes his people. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the for your ever abiding presence. Your holy word identifies Jesus as Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, and we're thankful that. that your presence with your people did not leave with Jesus when he ascended into heaven, but your presence remains with his people, with your people, to this very day, through your abiding Holy Spirit. Thank you for this comfort. Thank you for this encouragement. Lord, we may not know what this year will turn out like, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in the lives of our loved ones, whether it's in our country or in the world. But regardless of what happens, Lord, help us to continue to look to you, to remember that you are a God who is close, a God who has us in his hands, a God who grounds us in his steadfast love, which we so vividly see at the cross. And so, Father, we all pray, help us to trust in you. And God, we pray that you would make your face shine brilliantly upon us, favor us, help us that we may do as the psalmist did in Psalm 13, to sing to your name, 
to trust in your steadfast love. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.